I'm just imagining you walking out of the of the bathroom with like, you know, a towel wrapped around your head like a turban being like, Sid, where's my Epsom salt? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Hello to you. And playing the part of Stephanie Butnick... <laughs> guest host. Our first in a an august line of guest hosts. She was a Jew of the week. We loved her so much. We thought one of us should go on family leave and then we'll have a, an opportunity to bring her back. Kylie Unell is a doctoral student in Jewish philosophy and she's the founder of Rooted, a program that brings Judaism to life for young people. Hello, Kylie. Hello. I want to go into the new girl theme song because I'm the sole female <laughs> among men right now. But I will spare you. I actually have a great singing voice, but I'll spare you right now. Do you really have a great singing voice? I do. I'm a, I have like professional Trained. You're like got <laughs> serious chops. I love that you owned it. I love that you're like, I have a great singing voice. Good. Why not? See, cause because Kylie, I also say I have a great singing <laughs> voice, but I'm the only person who thinks that. <laughs> I'll just tell you that my family doesn't recognize how great my singing voice is. Let's just put it that way. That's how every good American Idol audition started, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so because we enjoy exploiting uh, young labor, we're actually making you do two jobs tonight. You're a guest host. You're also going to be our Jew of the Week. So welcome on both counts, Kylie. Our Gentile of the Week, it's Liam McCabe. Liam writes home appliance reviews for Wirecutter, the site owned by the New York Times that does product reviews. And it was thanks to Liam that I got just a terrific new vacuum cleaner. And Sid could tell you, I've gone through so many any vacuum cleaners in my attempt to find the perfect vacuum cleaner. And I finally found it. And it was thanks to Liam. And I thought, Liam McCabe sounds like a Gentile. Let's get him on the show. We always need a good GOTW. And he is here as the Gentile of the week. And a few listeners are wondering what middle age feels like. <laughs> it is a man sitting and saying, you know who I'd like to talk to? The whippersnapper who reviews the vacuums for the New York Times. It turns out he's he's a gem of a man. We'll get to Liam in a minute. But look, Kylie, as we told you, and as you know, as a listener, you know, we like to begin by just kind of easing into things, finding out what's up. How are you doing? How are things rolling in lower Manhattan for you? In lower Manhattan, I guess compared to New Haven, Connecticut, it's lower, but I'm on the upper west side. And to me, it feels above everything. Although to be honest, because I know where you live, you're in the lower Upper West Side. I am. <laughs> and it's a point of pride for me because it I'm is. not in the shtetl where Liel lives, like right in the pale of Jewish settlement on the Upper West Side. I'm outside. On the Upper Upper, right. In my own defense, as a born New Yorker married to a born New Yorker, your grad school institution is in Lower Manhattan. So I just, I guess I thought you were down there. My grad school institution has been my bedroom for the last year and a half. So I've really lost touch with where it is exactly. You see, mine <laughs> was too, and it wasn't even COVID. <laughs> it was just 2005, and I was like, nah, I'm staying here. Well, you were studying video games. It's a very different world. That's right. <laughs> you had to be in a basement to get the degree. Also right. That's right. We have we have NYU to thank for bringing both of you to Gotham. But things are going well. Your projects are going well. Your school, your studies are going well, Kylie. Things are going well. Thank God. Everything is going really well. I'm really happy with where things are. I got to walk in the park today and talk to a stranger for 40 minutes. Okay, Kylie, enough, enough about you. Let's talk about us for a second. So I want to take you back to the moment in which you got the call <laughs> to be the co-host <laughs> of yeah. this year podcast. And I want you to share what, what did you feel? Was it weird? <laughs> are you, are you resentful? Are you sort of like, you know, wondering what you're doing here? Tell us. No, it's weird because I've actually co-hosted before, but it was when it was a full on just estrogen party on Purim. And it was me, Stephanie, and Abigail Pogerbin. And right. I suggested that we play the Destiny's Child Survivor song because we were all women and we we're all here and celebrating Purim. And now I just feel like we're just trying to figure out what our theme song would be. My theme song really as the sole source of, of estrogen amongst a lot of testosterone right now. <laughs> you are into theme songs. You want to sing the new girl theme song. You have a theme song thing. And what's funny about that is you came up in an age when theme songs had actually gone away. I mean, when Liel and I were kids, sitcoms would play a full three minute song as they rolled through the credits at the beginning. Like you're a sitcom kind of girl. I'm an old soul. I once was asked to give a speech at a wedding of a friend I didn't particularly like. And I sort of molded over, uh, you know, these are things that I take seriously and had a drink and then molded over some more and then had another drink. And by the time it was time to give the speech, I just came up there and, and completely panicking. Said so the first thing that came to my mind, which is love, exciting and new. <laughs> Come on board. We're expecting, <laughs> expecting you. Expecting you. Love, life's sweetest reward. It's a, it's an open smile and a friendly shore. And people 
freaking loved it. I think I then went into family ties as well. <laughs> now, this was on a cruise ship, of course, to make it relevant. This was a wedding on a love boat, I hope. Uh, it was in Rhode Island, which is the closest <laughs> thing we would ever get. <laughs> Speaking of television, is, is either of you watching the Olympics? Does either of you have anything to say about the Olympics? Because I'm in love with an Olympian. And so if neither of you has anything to add, can we get to me and my future for a moment? My only thing is that on my Roku device, it says that it's the 2020 Olympics, which just bothers me because it's 2021 and it's it's not the 20. You can say it's 2020, but it's not. Are they calling it the 2020 Olympics, though, in the official yeah. branding? Is Are we in 2020, according to the International Olympic Committee? Kills me. I love to think that we are. So I haven't actually watched any of the Olympics, but I've read in the newspaper that this woman, Jessica Fox, whom I did watch three minutes of during the Olympic trials for Australia months ago or something. I was sort of, she was on my radar screen because of course she was also popping on the lists of Jewish athletes to watch for. So she just won a gold medal in either, I can't remember if it's called slalom canoe or canoe slalom. Whichever it is, I saw some, a few minutes of it. It's, <laughs> it's basically, they put you in a tank where they generate fake rapids that you have to navigate through in a one-person canoe. She also, I think, is good at kayak slalom, but but her gold came in canoe slalom. She won the gold. And it turns out that she is canoe slalom royalty. Her parents, who seem to be sort of French by way of Australia, are Richard and Miriam. Dad Richard Fox, not a Jew, but was a canoeist at the Olympics himself in the 1992 Games for England. Her mother won a bronze medal in 1996 for France in something canoe-related. Her father is now like the second vice president of the International Canoe Federation, the ICF, or in French, probably the CIF or the FIC. You know, they just switch the letters around in French. Or in French, le douche canoe. <laughs> le douche canoe. He's a five-time world champion. Anyway, it turns out there's this family of Jews and fellow travelers, you know, the Jewish and, and those who marry the Jews, that is basically taking over the world of slalom canoe. Oh, her younger sister, Noemi, is a slalom canoeist. And her aunt, Rachel Crosby, also a slalom canoe. Basically, everyone who's ever been good in this little obscure sport in the history of the world is related to Jewish gold medalist Jessica Fox. So first of all, Mark, I could listen to you say slalom canoe all day long because it literally <laughs> sounds like you're talking about your college band. And then uh, me and the guys in slalom canoe. Second of all, I've watched this thing. And as someone who has, on several occasions, tried to canoe while drunk, it looks a lot like a person trying to canoe while drunk. It's like, oh, where's the stream again? Not saying it's not hard, but it's kind of silly looking. No, I'm sure it's hard. But look, let's, let's just be honest here. Let's just break it down. I think all of us wonder if we worked hard enough in some sport that maybe just doesn't have that many people in it, could we make the Olympics, right? We've all, I think, had that thought. And I'll tell you, I had a friend in college who was a swimmer, ended up winning silver in the modern pentathlon. Now, look, she's a great athlete. Don't get me wrong, a fabulous athlete. But like, part of it is there aren't millions of people training to be modern pentathletes since the age of six. So I feel like slalom canoe is pretty permeable for a guy like me. But could you train you, your wife, and your children to all be celebrities <laughs> in this field? Maybe it's not too late. I mean, look, I have I have a two-year-old. Like, there's no reason he can't be a slalom canoe canoeist. No, there's hope. There's definitely hope for sure. What do you think that, that, that by the 2042 Olympics, when drinking is finally recognized as an Olympic <laughs> sport, my children maybe will recognize my values and, you know, be the athletes that they're born to be. Liel, I think you're going to get a medal in gaming fandom. You'll get a medal in reaction shots, web reaction shots to gamers. You know, basically the joke that you're making right now encapsulates perfectly my entire relation to the Olympics. I get that there are like, Six things in the Olympics that are genuinely, like, amazingly hard to do. And on top of that, <laughs> there are 38 competitions that are only there because they yep. need another thing to fill, like, a day of broadcast on NBC. And I'm sorry, we say this every time the subject comes up. I understand it's hard, but any sport that requires a judge scoring things on, on like, a 10-point system is not a real sport and should not be taken seriously by any adult. I'm sorry. Sorry, gymnast. It's not a real sport. Uh, don't write to me and say, oh, but could you do it? No, I could barely no, get off my can't. freaking chair. I'm a 45-year-old, <laughs> half-broken, middle-aged man with a lot of problems. But, uh, you know, a sport is something where you know who wins at the end of the thing. That's a sport. Sorry. When I was watching the men competing in skateboarding and they'd set up a railing, a banister for them to, a fake one, you know, to slide down. I thought, 
what sellouts, right? Like they came up on the hard, the empty swimming pools of Los Angeles and Tokyo and Berlin, wherever, and they've got tats going up their necks and, and they were like dodging the cops so that they could actually skate on public plazas and then take off when the fuzz came. And now they're wearing all their endorsements and they're skating down and being judged by old East German ladies holding up cards. They're being judged for how well they skate down a fake railing. At least Israel procured its, I think, second ever gold medal this week mm. with the unimprovably named Artyom Dolgofayat, whose name I'm probably botching. He is an artistic gymnast who also has the distinction of looking suspiciously like Stephanie Butnick's Ben Cohen, which as far as I'm concerned, if I picked a fake name to compete in the Olympics, I would go for something like Artyom Dolgofayat. Maybe it is Ben Cohen. I've suspiciously heard he's not showing up for work the past week. That's right. He has not been going to the office, so maybe so. Baby or Olympics, you be the judge. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel you've moved us into the news of the Jews portion of this episode. And I have one thing I want to talk about. And I know that Liel and Kylie, you have something you guys really want to talk about. I just want to bring up because I never let a good debasement of Anne Frank go unmentioned. According to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, in a recent episode of Showmatch, an Argentine talent contest show, one of the contestants sang a song about, quote, women who don't leave the house. And it was supposed to be a song about female empowerment because the other women who, quote, don't leave the house include Oprah Winfrey and Mother Teresa. So weird metaphor, not leaving the house as empowerment, but she sang it in front of a background image of Anne Frank. (laughs) The song is entitled I'm Not That Woman. It's by Spanish singer Paulina Rubio. And it's about empowered women who don't follow traditional societal norms, you know, like like leaving the house. So, you know, I just have to, I don't even know what to say anymore. Like I have two thoughts. One is it's so horrific, the ignorance and the malicious use of actual Holocaust victims as just the trappings of dumb celebrity culture. And then there's part of me that thinks, well, I know what Liel would say. He would say, Anne Frank is like the bagel. It doesn't belong to the Jews anymore. It's just slid into popular culture. We don't, we can't protect her anymore. we've, We've lost control. Maybe there's some serenity in just thinking that about her. Maybe I just have to not be enraged anymore. I, I don't know. What What do you guys think? Pop stars are a different brand of people, though. She might not belong to the Jews anymore, but I don't know if she belongs to the pop stars. I think that's a fair point. So they're not a, they're not a more privileged group of people. They're actually a, a less privileged group of people. They don't get to steal <laughs> Anne Frank from us. I think they've earned the position. I'm just thinking of, I mean, while we're at it, why not just to have uh, Anne Frank as, as an icon of uh, social distancing? Like, well, to curb the <laughs> pandemic... <laughs> Do as Anne did and stay home. You know who didn't get COVID-19? Anne Frank. You know who could beat the Delta variant? Anne Frank. She wasn't as selfish as you are. She just stayed at home like she was told. (laughs) All right. Well, now that I've scratched that itch, Liel, I believe you have the most important bit of NOTJ this week. It concerns beloved Jewish actress Mila Kunis, a star of the greatest Jew-on-Jew romantic comedy ever, forgetting Sarah Marshall with the great Jason Segel. Uh, She's a favorite of mine. She's married to Ashton Couchet. What's the news this week? So this week, in an interview on Dax Shepard's podcast, Mila and Ashton revealed that they, comment vous dites, do not like to bathe themselves and their children as often as modern Western society might require or might consider hygienic. They said something along the lines of, well, if we see dirt on our kids... We bathe them. This is something that touches me wholeheartedly. Look, I'm a serial bather. I like my showers. I take several of them a day. But are you a bath guy or a shower guy? Let's just be clear. No, no. Only I'm, I'm in New York. Who has a bath? I mean, what are we, Trump? No, we, we have little <laughs> nasty showers. Proud to say I have a bathtub. So just call me Trump. I have a bathtub too. But do you ever bathe? Like, do you ever actually like soak in it? I feel like all bathtubs in New York wait, wait. are like gross. I'm going to say something super gendery. I think women take baths more than men. I think the odds are the over under on Kylie is she does take baths. Yes, I I don't I don't frequently, but I do, and I have more than once a year. 
I think that counts as taking bats. That is all you could hope for. Having said that, by the way, I should say that Mrs. Oppenheimer does not take bats. I am the bath <laughs> taker in this family because she considers them frivolous and, and time wasters and she's got stuff to do. She has children to raise. <laughs> she has five kids. <laughs> she, she looks at me when I'm going to take a bath. She's like, oh, oh, you have time to take a bath? Well, I belong to the normative camp of, of people who shower frequently and I therefore praise for their hygiene. A few years ago, I joined another subculture, if you will, a subgroup of, of persecuted Americans, when I started noticing that my hair felt, uh, by the way, my hair, I would say, which is beautiful. It's luscious. Which was judged by Simon Doonan as by far the superior hair among men yes. on the Unorthodox <laughs> podcast. because It is you know, true. He, wow. he took a close wow. look and said, there's a clear winner here. He then accused me of dyeing my hair. Not only did he say that you had more luscious hair, he said mine was a bit overstyled. And then he looked at me and said, and you color it, right? Which, which I do not. <laughs> a smart and tasteful man. I started noticing that my hair did and felt much better when I simply washed it with water and didn't subject it to the terrors to the coercion of shampoo. I now wash. I am proud of that fact. I'm imagining a lot of people are going to go, oh, disgusting. I wash my hair about every two months with shampoo. The rest of the time, I mean, wow. not when I'm in the pool, not when I'm, you know, dirty or something, but the rest of the time, we just sit at freaking home all day long, which is a point that Ashton and Mila were making. If you don't actually get dirty and expose yourself to filth and germs and stuff like that, all you need is just a little bit water. And I want to share a great quote that Mila gave. She said, when asked how exactly does she clean herself, her husband and her kids, she said, I wash pits and tits and holes and souls. Give that woman the Nobel Prize for literature, as far as I'm concerned, and, and for medicine at that, because here's, here's where the rant culminates. There is something really, I think, profoundly, not just un-Jewish, but really unhuman about like this obsessive need to constantly clean anything. There's nothing more goyish to me than Mr. Clean, than walking into a home <laughs> and it smells not of like soup cooking on the stove, but of like Lysol wipes or whatever the fuck, like something that just smells so, oh, we wiped it down because God forbid it had germs. That's the stuff that makes you sick. That's the stuff that destroys immunity. That's the stuff that just makes you shrivel and shut off to light. I wash my hair every two months and I love Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher even more, which I didn't think was possible because they know what's what. There's something to that for sure. I will say as somebody who has had curly hair her whole life, I was taught at a very early age that you do not shampoo your hair often, but I thought that was a curly hair thing. So it's good to know that that's not just a curly hair thing. It's just more normal. But I stumbled upon this podcast. I was looking for something new to listen to. And Dax Shepard sometimes has some interviews that I like. Mm -hmm. He's great. The thing that they were talking about, though, was washing the natural oils off of your body and your face. And at first they made a really good argument for it, which is that you should preserve those natural oils. And so I kind of got freaked out, which is a new low point in my life that Dax Shepard, <laughs> Mila Kunis, and Ashton Kutcher freaked me out. Like they scared me. And I thought that I needed to change course in my life because I've developed a very careful beauty routine, particularly for my face. And then I have these guys saying, don't do anything, abandon all of that, just wash with water and then like wash with soap every other day. And I thought about it. At first I was like, yes, we're going to do that. And then I woke up the next morning and I washed my face and I put a little bit of astringent on just to see what was there. And there was dirt. You don't just wash your face with water and get the dirt off. The natural oils create, I don't know the technical language for things under your skin, but I think non-technically it's acne. <laughs> I think they create <laughs> It's acne. schmutz, I believe is the word you're looking schmutz for. Schmutz is one way that schmutz then creates acne. And you have to wash in order to have beautiful glowing skin. Come on, Kylie, the act is natural. You're just a, a victim of the corporate machine and Western modernity and late modern <laughs> capitalism. I don't buy it. Mila Kunis, look at her, she's radiant. So you're back on team clean with me is what you're saying. I am back <laughs> fully on team clean, fully on team glowing, beautiful face. The 
Gentile of the Week this week is a personal get of mine. I was reading Liam McCabe's reviews for Wirecutter. I was particularly impressed by his reviews of vacuum cleaners. I think he's really good at what he does. I think he raises the product review to a serious art form. He has helped me immensely. He's been covering the world of appliances since 2011. He's the Charles Bukowski of <laughs> vacuum cleaners. He actually has to think about some pretty deep stuff. And Stephanie Botnick and I had such a good time talking with him a few weeks ago. Here is Gentile of the Week, Liam McCabe. Liam McCabe, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. The first big question I have is, you know, what is your job? What is it that, because I love your work. Some people, they're into Paul Krugman or Thomas Friedman or Michelle Goldberg or these other <laughs> Times people, Wesley Morris. I'm into Liam McCabe. So tell the people who don't know your work what you do. Well, first of all, it's very nice of you, Mark. Thank you. So I am a writer for Wirecutter. It's a mix of product reviewer and journalist reporter. My main job is to make the guides that you see on Wirecutter. So things like best cordless vacuums, best microwaves, best washers and their matching dryers. It's everything from finding what products exist to doing some research on how they work and what might meet most people's needs to actually testing some of them almost all the time and then writing a long guide, making picks and putting it out into the world and waiting for people to either tell me we're right or tell us we're wrong. We say things and people get mad at us. We're not like telling people to buy specific things. So like right. whatever you recommend gets sold out right away. Like, do you feel like there's a lot of pressure when you're doing the specific things that are like in someone's home? Like, you know, they get the vacuum that you recommend and hate it. Like, do you feel that pressure? And do people yell at you? Yeah, absolutely. Most people are nice, but a few people yell. Yeah, it's pressure. I definitely treat it like I treat it like I'm spending readers money for them. Like, I feel like you have to take it that seriously. Otherwise, like nobody's going to trust you. I think appliances has a special high stakesness. I recommend a washing machine. It's a thousand bucks. It's 120 pounds. <laughs> if you don't like it, you can't really just put it back in your car and drive it back to the store. Like you're sort of stuck with it for a long time. It's a lot of money. So yeah, we take that very seriously and it's it's a lot of pressure. So how did you get into this line of work? Take us to the moment you got into appliance reviews and appliance reporting. Mostly I fell into it. I went to J school. I went to Syracuse University, did journalism there. Graduated during the recession. I didn't really have a plan. I sort of figured I'd be like a rock music critic and figure something out. I was not very successful in finding jobs for a little while, but then I saw a posting for a network of review sites that was specializing in digital cameras, camcorders, GPS units. So that should all give you some clue as to the, the era in which this was happening. You love that Garmin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. There was no experience required for that job. So I applied and took it and tried to make the most of it. Was there for a couple of years and then I moved over to another review site that's owned by USA Today called Reviewed. And I had met the guy who founded Wirecutter, Brian Lamb, at trade shows. He had started Wirecutter. I really liked what they were doing. And I did as much as I could to make a move over there and have been at Wirecutter since 2013. The transition to appliances was partly done at Reviewed. They were probably the first site that reviewed appliances that wasn't consumer reports. I think they were the first ones doing it. And then I could use my tiny amount of experience from reviewed to convince the people at Wirecutter that I was fit to do it there. I'm so glad you mentioned consumer reports. When I was growing up, you know, I was born 1974 and my parents were like, they were part of an era where like Ralph Nader was a hero, right? Consumer advocacy, consumer, like the idea that you had to have journalism covering these products because otherwise the products could kill you, right? Unsafe at any speed. They subscribed in print and may still to Consumer Reports, which was never cheap. It came once a month and it wasn't necessarily what you needed. Like the cover story that month might be reviews of pickup trucks. My parents were never going to buy a pickup truck. So then they just threw it out. But every fifth month, the story was like new reviews of this thing you need, right? <laughs> of like washing machines. But it was like a movement, like you got it. Consumer Reports was the granddaddy. And I think if you weren't part of that culture, 
in which it was kind of tied in with liberal politics and consumer advocacy and watchdogism, you wouldn't understand how much it meant to my household. Are you conscious of that lineage? Like, do you still feel you're in that consumer advocacy protection lineage? I like to think so. I still think consumer reports, they are plainly stated in an advocacy organization. I grew up reading Zillions, their kids' magazine. So I, I have been plugged <laughs> into that. Uh, yeah. See, I didn't know there was a kids' magazine. That's awesome. What was in Zillions? It was like highlights for products? It, it was some of that. <laughs> I mostly remember like the personal finance advice that they had in there. It's like you could you could buy all these video games or you could put the money away and with the compound interest, you'd have a Ferrari <laughs> by the time you're 25. <laughs> I don't think they recommend Ferraris in the magazine, but point taken. <laughs> I like to think that what I do can help, you know, move along some of those same concerns. So, you know, I think there's a worry with appliance buyers. There's a general sense that they don't make things like they used to. The jury is still out on that. I don't know that there's any slam dunk evidence that that's true because I've gone back to old issues of Consumer Reports. You know, did things really used to last longer than they used to? And the evidence is mixed. Like for certain categories it is, but the consensus now or like what the industry will tell you now is that major appliances should last 10 years. And I would find the same thing in Consumer Reports 10 years. I mean, cars last much longer. You used to get five yes. or six years out of a car and then it was like it was in the shop all the time. Now, my 2004 Honda Odyssey minivan refuses to die. I want a new one and it won't stop going. Right. So I hope that, you know, by pushing the industry a little bit and raising the point that people do want things that last longer, that can help move things along. I would like to hope that I can make something like that happen with my work. What's your favorite thing you've ever reviewed, like unexpected and weird? My favorite article I've done is actually microwaves because I'd heard whispers for years that it's, it was only two companies that made all the microwaves in the world. And so when it was my turn to update the microwaves guide, I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. Like, I got to <laughs> I got to get to the bottom of this. So what I did was I made a list of all the brands that sell microwaves in the U.S. And then there are services that aggregate all the import records, like anything that comes through customs gets you know written down, recorded, and you can pay like a monthly fee to these services and search through them. So I went and I tried to, I looked for shipments of microwaves from any of those brands and just tried to note where they came from. I ended up figuring out that there's pretty much one company that manufactures most of the microwaves that get sold in the U.S., at least the cheap ones. Part of that was like bringing in a bunch of microwaves and disassembling them and comparing the components inside. So that one really felt like I was discovering something that somebody didn't want me to find out, but was actually like a little mundane, but an entertaining kind of mundane when I got to the bottom of it. So, okay. I always feel like if you're like a dentist or a dermatologist, people are always coming up to you being like, can you look at this mole? So do you have friends who are texting you being like, hey, man, I'm at... I'm in Best Buy. Yeah. I was going to say I'm in Best Buy, but people even go to Best Buy anymore? I don't even know. Stephanie, I go to Best Buy weekly. So what are people always like trying to get the inside scoop from you? Yeah. Or asking me for advice on why it broke and how to fix it. I'm like, I don't really know that. Uh, I have some idea, but yeah, there's people people asking. It's a, it's a lot of people on staff who aren't on uh, editorial using Slack to, <laughs> to ask Someone had a bad experience with the LG washing machine recently. And they wanted your head. Yeah, right. It's sort of a helpless feeling when you're stuck with a, an appliance that's not really working. Where does all this testing happen? Is there like a warehouse with just like a bunch of washing machines and robot vacuums? And 1950s sets with like <laughs> <laughs> with like women walking around in, in aprons and children with crew cuts. Yes, exactly. No, it's a it's a mix. Most of the vacuum testing I do at home, it's gone back and forth. So we have a, an office in Queens. I think it's an old envelope factory. So there's a lot of open space in the basement and the appliances team has a corner where we can set up dishwashers and washing machines. Even with that space, like testing appliances is sort of a logistical nightmare. Like they just take up so much space. And COVID has made things very complicated for the past year and a half. We're hoping to get back in soon. But yeah, I, I would break it down like major appliances get reviewed at the Long Island City office and vacuums mostly get done at home, mostly my home. And so are you like bringing your laundry into the office to test these machines? Personally, no, because that'd be a long haul in the Amtrak, but there are <laughs> staff who are so thrilled that there's like a free washing machine in the basement that we want them to use. So they'll, they'll bring bags of laundry in from Brooklyn or, or wherever. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so it's not your team. It's like other people who are Other people, like... anyone in the <laughs> office. Yeah, as long as we're not 
act. You're like, it's laundry day, everyone. Go for it. Yeah. Tell me what you think. Afterwards, they go to the the hairstyling academy to get a a free haircut. (laughs) (laughs) The student barbers do them. So listen, we've learned during the show that you are a a Boston Irish gentleman. We always give the Gentile of the Week an opportunity to ask a question of us Jews. Is there anything about Jews or Judaism or the Jewish people or our story that you've just always wondered about now that you have some Jewish experts right in front of you who can answer the question with maximal authority? We've tested everything. (laughs) (laughs) I have a theology question, actually. So, like, I I grew up non-religious and have been just kind of curious about monasticism over the past few years. Like, like why? And, you know, the, the Catholic and Buddhist traditions are really interesting, but it seems like there's not much of a monastic tradition in Judaism. I was wondering, maybe I'm wrong. and Tell me if I'm wrong. You are right. That is a great question. Butnik, can I take this one? Yes, please. Okay, so I've actually looked into this. It is true. I believe that, so back in biblical times, like around the year zero, around the time of Jesus, there were some Jewish orders that had ascetic traditions where they wouldn't cut their hair for a while and they wouldn't have sex for a while. They would, they would take on what we think of as monastic type disciplines for a while. I don't think for life. Those groups no longer exist. They haven't for a couple thousand years. They were sort of desert groups. And basically since then, you are right. We don't do monasticism. You know, the ideal is that even if you're in reading and studying all the time, you still go home at night in sort of the most traditional forms of Judaism. You'd go home to a wife. You'd be a man. You'd go home to a wife. You'd procreate to have children. And that is culturally kind of the tradition. Yeah, we don't have a kind of role for the person who renounces it all to just learn. Even if you're learning all the time, you're supposed to have your cake and eat it too. You're still supposed to have a home and a sex life and all that stuff. So I don't know. I I'll put it to our listeners, actually, who know how to reach us, 914-570-4869. Some of you must have nerded out on this, and I know that there were these groups a couple thousand years ago, but it's, yeah, it's kind of not what we do, which is sort of interesting. Are you inclined towards, in that you thought, if you were going to go religious, you'd be a monk? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> to me, it's such a fascinating question from you because you spend your your days with stuff, right? With mm-hmm. things, with right. products, with purchases. I mean, you're so part of the consumer world. You're interested in it, also like repelled by it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't want to be. Uh, I don't have a problem with consumerism. I I don't. But I I try to get to the heart of why people might be, and it seems to have this like thousands of years long lineage. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, you may not know, as our listeners do, that I have five children and two dogs. So washing machines and dryers and vacuum cleaners and air conditioners, like they make my life bearable. And I just (laughs) want to thank you for the work you do. I think you write with wit and reliability, and I just love your work. And I'm just so grateful. Thanks for being our Gentile of the Week, Liam McCabe. Well, thank you so much. I was really happy to be here, and that's really nice to hear. And uh, yeah, thanks again. You can find Liam McCabe's writing at the website Wirecutter. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Hey, Kylie, you want to read a letter from the mailbox? I would love to. Why don't you read that first letter, the corrections letter in which we get smacked down? Gladly. Oh, what an honor. Hi, Unorthodox. So in a recent episode, Mark and Liel opined about the good things about the Mormon church and community. I wanted to correct Mark's statement about Mormon religious education. Mark is correct that it is called seminary and takes place before school in the early morning, and is usually an hour or so in length. However, it doesn't start until high school, so it's four years, not 12. Before high school, there is no specific religious education program outside of Sunday school. Anyway, love the pod, even as an avowed Gentile atheist, Evan Stewart. Evan Stewart? We never doubted your gentilic status with a name like Evan Stewart. And it's so great to have a lapsed Latter-day Saint, a lapster day Saint writing in to correct me. Look, the Mormons I've met are so educated about their faith. I figured it was 12 years of seminary, not just four. But I, I defer to your judgment as a seminary alumnus. And uh, so great to have you in the J Crew. Write to us anytime. You know who else is educated about faith? Who's that? Catholics, and I assume it was one of them who wrote to us the following letter. Hi, Leal Mark and Josh. Regarding your question on how the date for Easter is determined, it is the first Sunday following the first full moon of spring. Can I just read a sentence again just because I enjoy reading it so much? It is the first Sunday following the first full moon of spring. It sounds like a thing out of a Led Zeppelin song. The way to determine Easter was established in the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 CE. And one of the goals was that of finally separating it from Pesach, from Passover. Tradition states that Christ was crucified during Passover, being that the Last Supper was actually a Passover Seder. So in early Christianity, Passover and the resurrection of Christ were celebrated together. Signed, Joao. This is amazing. So you you try to walk away from us and you end up with the first Sunday following the first full moon of spring. We pull you right back in. Guys, 14th of Nissan is so much easier. <laughs> I have gotten different information over the years from scholars about whether the Last Supper was actually a Passover Seder. And if anyone knows definitively, Kylie, do you know about this as a, a doctoral student at Liel's alma mater? <laughs> I'm a doctoral student in modern Jewish philosophy. I know nothing about that. I, I love how this call is like, it's not a Seder. It was the second Seder. Jesus went to his in-laws that day in, in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Please explain this to me because I've had people say, well, we don't know that it was a Seder. It doesn't seem to be a Seder. There was no orange on the Seder plate. There was no shank bone. They didn't sing Dayenu. They didn't whip each other with scallions. Like, where's the evidence that it was a Seder? But maybe it's a Seder. I don't know. I, I would love for people to write in or call us. All right. Now, Mark, speaking of writing in, we have one more amazing letter that I, I think you should read because it, it concerns me. And I would like to hear it in your dulcet tones. I love reading mail about you. Dear Mark, Leal, and Stephanie, first, congrats to the new mother. Stephanie, I wish you all the best. Now, after listening to the latest episode, I realize Liel is in need of a good Christian Gentile friend so he can be a little more in the know about Goyim. Admittedly, that isn't a necessity for a Jewish man, but might be nice all the same. I also have no shortage of opinions and love to engage in lively debate, especially when it ends in laughter rather than anger. So, for the role of being that Gentile friend, let me be the first to officially throw my hat in the ring. I would also like to compliment Robert Scaramuccia on his attempt to answer how we determine when Easter is. He did better than most would have done. Peace and all good, Roberto Tito 
Serrano. So you know what you have, Tito? You have what the Mormons call chutzpah because you have <laughs> you have proposed a job that we have no budget for and you've said, hire me. You basically said, you need to give Liel a Gentile buddy who just follows him around and, you know, I guess makes him gin and tonics and serves him bacon cheeseburgers and cleans things. And by the way, I love that your imagination of my Gentile friend is someone who makes me a gin and tonic yeah. and cleans things. That's just amazing. And, you know, has over really fluffed pillows. Pick your Gentile stereotype from the backlog, from the archives of our show. But I love that that Tito Serrano has has pitched this job and he's written the grant and he said, and by the way, when you get the money, hire me. So how about it, Liel? Tito Serrano, you are now my official (laughs) uh, good Christian Gentile friend. I will be getting in touch with you so we could go and do ecumenical things together that hopefully involve drinking and talking about how to determine Easter. I think the uniform for this job is like the Mr. Clean white t-shirt with the <laughs> one earring. Yes. <laughs> I mean, basically, if Liel is the six foot five Jewish, you know, desert beast, this guy's a six foot five sort of lean, chiseled, Mr. Clean, as you say, guy. He carries a little New Testament in one back pocket. <laughs> Emily Post's etiquette guide in the other. I love the idea of a, of a Gentile buddy following you around everywhere. And of course, at some point on our first date, you'd be like, wait, it doesn't count that my uh, mother and grandmother and her grandmother are all Jewish, right? <laughs> <laughs> my mother, the Rebbitson, would be so happy that you have a Gentile friend now. I mean, honestly, the first thing he's going to do is tell you that if he's going to be your Gentile buddy, you have to use shampoo every day. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't happening. That's where the relationship ends. Hey friends, our annual Yom Kippur apology episode is coming up. If you have any stories about apologies, forgiveness, atonement, atonement given, sought, apologies forgiven, apologies not forgiven, apologies forgotten, apologies rejected, making things right in general, let us know. Give us a call. Tell us your story in under a minute. We might call you back. 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our Jewish guest of the week is also our co-host of the week, is also one of our favorite people of this and every other week, is also the first person we thought of when we contemplated the unthinkable, the question of who might, even for a short while, step into the shoes of our beloved Stephanie Butnick. She is, well, you know her already. Hello, Kylie O'Neill. Hello. I'm so excited. So Kylie, in addition to yammering with us and listening to us ridiculous middle-aged men (laughs) ramble on about bizarre things. I think it's called mansplaining. I think I just was here for mansplaining. We mansplain, we manspread, we man everything. But we are thrilled now to talk about, not us, but you, because you have a brand new, and if I may, Unfreaking believable show coming out on this year tablet studios on our very podcasting network. Tell us about it. Well, admittedly, I'm not the best at elevator pitches, but I don't think that there's anything to really pitch here because this is a podcast following me trying to find and fix my soul because the Jews have a glorious month on the Jewish calendar called Elul leading into the new year and Rosh Hashanah, where we're given the task of soul searching and taking stock of what we've done in the past year that was good, what we've done that we're proud of, who we've wronged, what we feel like we didn't do exactly right, and fixing that so that we clean the slate and go into the new year ready to be judged and told whether we are going to live or whether we are going to die, which is a huge thing. And I realized that I have no idea how to do that. And unlike every other Jewish holiday and every other every other moment on the Jewish calendar, there is no instruction guide to doing that. So I am going to be testing out different ways to clean your slate for the new year, to find your soul, to fix your soul, And we're going to see what happens. I think I have a soul, but we're going to have to wait till the end of the month to just make sure that that's true. This is such a fascinating concept. The show is called How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days. And it is based on exactly this premise of what you said. If you're listening to this, by the way, on Thursday, the month of Elul starts the following Tuesday. And 
it is really kind of an, an amazing and curious thing because every other holiday has not just, you know, instructions that come with it, but like unbearably detailed accounts of exactly what you're supposed to be doing, eating, not eating, thinking, wearing, like at every freaking moment of every day. And here we have a 30-day period in which the only prompt is, Hey guys, you know, divine judgment's coming. You kind of have a 30 days for the big guy to determine if you get to live or die. So uh, good luck, you you know, kind of prepare and meditate or something. We don't know, go. So so when you started working on the show, where do you begin? What are some of the first steps? How do you, we're going to hear a little bit of it in a moment, but I'm curious, how do you even approach this prompt? Because it seems to me like, you know, people spend entire lifetimes doing this exact work. Yeah, I don't know if there is any right way to approach it, the way that I decided to do it was through the traditional way of prayer. Jews have been doing that for a long time. Supposedly, it's a good way to connect to yourself and find yourself. We'll see. Jury's out on that. Heat bodidut, which is like going out into nature or finding a small room or a corner of a room and just talking to God like he's there with you talking to your loved ones, talking to the people who know you the best and can say, hey, you hurt me when you did this. You didn't do this right. I know you're trying, but it's not working. Or you did this really well. Or there's just like letting go of everything and just saying, we'll see what happens. I'm just going to go figure it out. So this is not one of those shows in which, you know, we just hear you reading from a script. These are episodes in which we actually get to hear you grappling with what this month means and, and inviting listeners to come along for the ride. You are going to hear me talking out loud to God. We're going to be contemplating ideas related to Elul, talking to other people who are figuring it out. And yeah, just following me as I try and grasp what 30 days of soul searching is. Are you a faster? Do you fast for Yom Kippur? I do fast for Yom Kippur, yeah. What about the other six fast days? Are you like Tisha B'Av faster? I'm a Tisha B'Av faster, fickle with the other ones. <laughs> I don't, I just want to, the, the disclaimer is I'm not a rabbi. <laughs> this is not the answer. <laughs> I'm just curious because that's one of the few ways that the instruction book does give us to connect on Yom Kippur. And, you know, and then for some people, it's actually totally the wrong way to connect. It just makes them grumpy rather than spiritual. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, as you say, the instruction book is very thin. And then I think also the few instructions we have don't necessarily work for everyone. And and the, right. the point is to find something that works. So so what's the, how many episodes are there going to be? Give us the brass tacks, the real details. How many episodes are there going to be? When does it start? When does it conclude? There are going to be 10 episodes coming out twice a week. And I also just want to say on that topic of figuring things out for yourself, that's the hardest part about Judaism. And I am going through this process as myself going through this process. And it's not by any means an instruction guide for how anybody else should do it, but just seeing or listening to rather one person who is testing this out. And the idea is that it inspires other people to do the same, but in their own, totally their own way, because that's what Judaism is. You're not going to do everything perfectly. You're just going to try and you're going to see what works for you. So every week I'm going to be coming out with one episode contemplating an idea related to this method of fixing your soul. And then at the end of the week, I'm actually going to test it out. I'm going to talk about testing it out with other people who are also trying to do the same thing and feel their soul during the month of Elul. I love this description that, or this choice of words used, trying to do the same thing. Because, you know, as, as, as someone who's been trying for some years now, it's exactly that, right? I mean, it's never like, oh, okay, well, I'm religious now and therefore now I'm perfect and therefore now I'm going to follow these rules. It's like, it's a constant faltering, right? It's a constant. And Mark, your question, I think, is, is spot on. It's sort of like, wait, what do I do? Like, how much of this am I going to try? Like, and I also know I'm going to fail as I try. And I also know that sometimes I'm just not going to feel it. Is that part of the soul searching, this kind of constant stumbling and, and rising up from your own ashes? It's the hardest part. It's the biggest part. Like that's why it's so difficult because it's really about learning how to trust yourself and trust that what it is that you're feeling and the connection that you're feeling is real and opening yourself up to that. And it's going to look different for everybody. So there's this idea that if you do Judaism a certain way, if you dress a certain way, if you eat a certain way, then you're doing Judaism right and it's going to feel exactly right. But that I can almost say for certain that never works. Like you have to make it your own in order for it to fit. And 
yeah, that's what this podcast is all all about. I love the idea of the participant observer experiential podcast. Like we're diving into Elul, you're going to take us there. I think for some people, it's actually going to be their Elul worship is listening to your podcast. So we have a sample of the first episode, right? We do. Let's have a listen. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a clothing store in Soho. It was one of those stores where you walk in and you feel like you need to be dressed better and maybe put on a French accent because that's the only way you're going to fit in. I was browsing t-shirts and I pulled out one that had the words 100% human in the corner where a pocket would be. I put it up to me to try it on and then started thinking, am I? Can I really call myself 100% human? What does that even mean? I put it back. My name is Kylie Unell, and I swear I'm not delusional. I know that technically I'm human, but it feels like I need to remind myself that I'm human all the time. At this point in my life, when I wake up in the morning, I feel this crazy, daunting expectation that I do everything perfectly and measure up to this far-fetched ideal that's stuck in my head. Basically, I wake up believing that I need to be perfect, which feels completely at odds with the reality of being human. But we all know deep down that no one is perfect, and the more I look inward, the more it seems that my imperfections are essential to who I am. They are my humanity which is a really weird and uncomfortable thing to say, right? What makes it particularly uncomfortable is that our imperfections come from part of us that's invisible. You can't touch, taste, or smell what's at our core, but we all know it's there. I mean, Pixar made an entire movie out of it. They called it Soul. Incidentally, it's also one of my favorite movies of all time. So what exactly is the soul? I figured I'd ask some random people on the street. I don't think it's like a glowing ball of light inside of me, even though it would be awesome. <laughs> uh, I think I do have a soul, and it's and it's so indescribable to put into words, which is probably why you're asking these deep questions. It's just your essence, and it's part of what is you, mm. you know? And that's what you learn to accept, to learn to grow out of, and things like that. I feel like your soul is your personality. Nobody can change their personality at all. They just like can try to be something different, but I feel like everyone always comes back to their original personality because that's like their soul. I feel like I had one, but everybody loses their soul over time. How do you know you have a soul? I feel it. It's like a, a feeling that's not explained through science, you know? <laughs> and do you feel like you have a soul? Yeah. How do you know you have a soul? Now, there's a certain irony to me asking these questions. I am working towards my doctorate in Jewish philosophy, and I was even just named an aspiring Jewish philosopher by the New York Jewish Week for their annual 36 under 36 Jews who are shaping the New York Jewish community. Yet, I can't even answer these basic philosophical questions. However, I'm gonna go out and try and find some answers. This is an experiment we're calling How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days. In this podcast, I'm going to take advantage of a very special time coming up on the Jewish calendar, the month of Elul. Elul is a month that has everything to do with finding your soul and connecting to who you are at your core. Figuring out what you're doing that's disconnecting and connecting you, what you need to work on, and what you're already doing really well. But what exactly is Elul? Elul is the final month in the Jewish lunar calendar. While the rest of the world makes their resolutions the day before New Year's, we take a month because one day is never enough for the sages. Jewish tradition teaches that Jews should take stock of themselves for an entire month before Rosh Hashanah. So Elul, Judaism's December, is filled with soul searching. What we're trying to do here is go into the new year with a clean slate and a stronger sense of who we are as individuals. This is as big a deal as it sounds, which is why we need an entire month to do it. Now, While we Jews love instructions, there is no clear guidebook for how to go about doing this work. 
Some Jews pray. Some Jews talk to God like he's in the room. Some get feedback from their loved ones and others go in completely planless and just see where things take them. There is many other ways to go about it as there are Jews. This Elul, which begins at sundown on August 7th, I'm trying a bunch of things to see what works for me. Each week during the month of Elul, I'm going to bring you two episodes. The first will dive into specific concepts and practices and the thoughts behind them. The second will be me talking to people, putting them into practice. At the end, we'll see how I feel, if I feel found or not. To give you a taste of what's to come, I am going to start with a story of the very first Elul. In Exodus 24, God tells Moses, come up to me, ascend the mountain and be there. In other words, start climbing the mountain to go to God and be present there. But what does that mean? One could say that God is telling Moses to be present once he's up the mountain where God awaits him. But to me, this is also God telling Moses to be present in the process. So that's where Moses was and that's where I'm starting, being present. As most rabbis will tell you, the Hebrew word Elul can be read as an acronym for the phrase Anila Dodi Vidodi Li. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. For the month of Elul, that beloved is God. And in the process of really feeling like God is mine, I think I just might figure out my soul. Join me on the next episode, where I look at how prayer, and even one prayer in particular, will set me out on this path. Hit that subscribe button on your podcast app of choice and stay tuned. Until next time, I'm Kylie Yunell, and I'm figuring out how to fix a soul in 30 days. If you like what you just heard, and of course you do, because it is amazing. And if you want to join Kylie on her journey throughout this month of Elul, finding her soul and helping maybe you find yours, Subscribe to How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get this here unorthodox. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov for us? I have two. One for each one of my children who both had kind of banner weeks. Lily rocked learning how to ride a bike, went on one, uh, which we really never got around to in our very lazy family. Also, you're in New York City. It's a pretty New tough York sell. City. <laughs> who, who needs, right, among the trucks and the and the construction and, and who has a room in their apartment for bikes? But Lily right. just hopped in one. Is like, oh, I'm supposed to do it like this. And within, you know, 15 minutes, was, I wish I could take credit for teaching her how to ride a bike. I had these fantasies that I'd be the great coach dad. It was like, but the kid just hopped in the bike and learn how to do it. My second Mazel Tov is for Hudson, who is turning eight in two weeks, who today walked with me to the mailbox to check the mail and was delighted to discover a large envelope. The return address in the envelope was 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And the letter reads, Dear Hudson, thank you for sending such a kind note. Your support means a lot to Vice President Kamala Harris and me. Our country faces many challenges, and the work we have ahead of us is going to be really tough. I'm certain that we can come together as a nation and create positive change. It won't be easy, and I'm going to need your help. Even at your young age, you have the power to impact the future of your generation and generations to come. I urge you to remain curious, creative, and fearless. I wish you the best in the years ahead and look forward to seeing where your future takes you. Study hard, keep challenging yourself, and be kind. Sincerely, Joe Biden. Oh, that's so cute. What a great moment. He wrote a letter to the president and the president wrote back. And by the way, in the case of this president, I actually believe that Joe <laughs> Biden sat at his typewriter oh, like totally. using two fingers be like, dear Hudson With his Lee dog Lee. by his feet. <laughs> I didn't know people still did that. I remember I had a fifth grade teacher who showed me like Jimmy Carter's letter. I think of that as a thing of the past. He did it and he got the letter back. I like to think, and I believe this, and you know that I have had many criticisms of uh, President Emeritus Donald Trump. I bet even his White House, which left many positions unfilled, filled the staffing to reply to little kids' letters. It just seems to me so quintessentially American. Oh my God, I would love to see what a Trump letter to a young boy <laughs> that like, if you write to the president, Dear Hudson, you, you get a letter back. Don't study hard. It is a total waste of time. <laughs> Kylie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I also have two 
Elul-related mazel tovs. I have one to Rebecca Lowen, who is a killer blog s, a Jewish blog s, and she created a series of journal prompts for the month of Elul, all her own brilliance. So a mazel tov to that, and to Shira Kaplan, who created a beautiful Elul gathering, entering into the Hall of Fame of Gatherers for the month of Elul, mazel tov. I had really poor Mazel Tov game this week, but a listener called in to save me. And uh, I'm going to hand over my Mazel Tov to this woman who's just just so darn happy to get her son-in-law out of the house. <laughs> Hi, my name is Janet Greenfield. I'm calling with a Mazel Tov for this week. My Mazel Tov goes to Max Greenwald, my son-in-law. And my Mazel Tov is to Max for moving out of my house. Uh, my kids, my Max and my daughter, Moved in uh, last March to escape the pandemic in Manhattan, like a lot of people. They bought a house. They renovated the house. They had a baby. Uh, they lived with me with the baby until last night. And now they finally moved out. And I just want to say mazel tov to Max. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. If you want our swag, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. They sell, you know, shirts. Join our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, or on Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredmanator. Associate produced by Robert Scaramuccio. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Vacuum cleaners approved this week by Ed Nickow. Rabinic supervision by Rabbi Yvette Lutman of the Denver Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation in Denver, Colorado. And we come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. The worst of it is if I walk out with the towel wrapped around my head and I've completed the crossword puzzle, if there's a completed crossword puzzle in my hand, like ink stained from the water that got on it, then I'm really in the doghouse.